All right. Hello, hello, everyone. Uh, Tyler Bryden here. Really appreciate you joining. I'm lucky to be joined by a friend, a person I've known for a couple of years here, Michael Miller. You can see on his screen there, the big rays. He's got a book that recently come out. I've got it here. I was already telling Michael, here we go. I've been reading it and there's some painful truths in there in a valuable, powerful way about the, the things that you can do wrong while you're on your entrepreneurial uh, journey. And so I've known Michael for, I don't know, probably three years now through a, a yeah, friend, an introduction. Yeah. We got pulled into a call for really no a seeming reason it was by Patrick who set up a lot of calls like that. Just hey, you guys jump on a call. It'd be good for you to meet. And you walked me through how to read like some company financial documentation. And just in that moment, what I saw was an intense expertise, but also just like a passion for like teaching and sharing what you know. And obviously that has now been formalized in a book, The Big Raise. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today, as well as anything else that we want to talk about. So Michael, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, it's great to be here. I guess the first, maybe actually just to start, a little bit of summary of your background and experience. And then if you want to dive into that, to see what led you to actually creating this book? Because I think most people think of the idea of creating a book as a torturous process. So interested to hear why, how you went through that, and then what was the journey that led you to the creation? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it was a torturous process. I'll validate that. <laughs> it was three years. And then I didn't know that editing was going to take longer than the actual writing, but here I am. To give by way of background, I worked in venture capital at a couple of different funds over the years. And I later went on to have my own company, helping companies to raise money, came to building financial models, providing advice on what terms are acceptable, what you can push back at, what you can't push back at, what's reasonable, what you have to have prepared going into it. And for my time in venture capital, one of the more frustrating things I kept seeing was entrepreneurs with really good ideas who weren't getting funding. It's one thing if you have just a very bad idea or just an idea that just doesn't click with anyone. Like that, like all of us have had those before. But if you don't get funding and you have a good idea, and the reason you don't get funding is from a completely avoidable mistake, that felt like a complete tragedy. So what I did is I worked with a co-author of mine who was a Silicon Valley corporate attorney who uh, I went to business school with while he was doing his JD MBA. And then uh, I told him and I started talking to him on the phone saying, I'm meeting all these companies. They have really good ideas, but like they're not getting money because they're making all these really avoidable mistakes. And after a number of these calls, he said, why don't we put something together and coalesce all of these lessons and all these mistakes that people made into a book where a new entrepreneur who's going out there to raise money for his own business or her own business can read it and say, okay, I'm not going to make this mistake. I'm not going to make this mistake. And I'll be able to put my best foot forward when I've come up with that great idea. I can put my best foot forward to an investor. So this book was a culmination of years and years of watching people blow up who effectively should not have blown up. They should have been great successes, but they made a mistake in the process. And, and some of them, unfortunately, can be more serious than others. Yeah. And you walk through this almost as a, not a step-by-step -step guide, but from sort of ideation all the way to actually going out pitching. Yeah, we broke it into, uh, it's not obviously a narrative, but we broke it into four stages for the entrepreneur. And uh, ideation is when you're sitting around thinking up an idea, you're in your garage, you're tinkering, you're thinking, maybe I should do this, maybe I shouldn't. And then we get to the next stage, which is preparation, which is the point where you say, okay, I'm going to do this. And what do you need to prepare? What do you need to assemble? What kind of agreements do you need to have papered up? And what relationships do you need to set? Part three is the raise itself, which is when you're going out and interfacing with investors, you're actually having to have the dialogue with them, know what responses you have to have with them. And then part four is after the raise, which is what are the best practices you need to maintain after you've got money, if you ever want to get more money. So those are the four ways we broke it up. And I remember endlessly, we, when we got to this book writing process and we broke it up this way, 
we thought, oh, shoot, we have to go back and add an explanation here. We have to put a definition in here. We have to yeah. rework the chapters. So that was the way it ended up splitting. It was the four stages of, of raising capital. Yeah, and I, you know, I actually have a, as you're saying that, I had this distinct memory come up where I actually came to you with a term sheet that our team at SpeakAI had been given. And I remember you basically laughing, giggling at some point in that because some of the sort of preferences that had been put in that term sheet. And I think depending on where you are in your entrepreneurial journey, then different parts of this book also like resonate super deeply. And especially there's this macro fact, we can get into that later, but also where maybe depending on who you are, the traction that you have, the preferences or some of these terms may not be as favorable as they had been in a couple glory years before. I'll, oh, I'll speak, one thing you touched on specifically too was even the city of reverse vesting, which actually maybe not be as predatory as some of the other terms that you discuss, but even that such an interesting sort of concept. So again, just, I think you covered a lot of like little nitty gritty details that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially on their first journey, just gloss over because they're just so focused on trying to build a company and you just miss all these like very consequential small terms or something that might make a big impact on your quality of life or happiness or outcome or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we, we can dive into any number of those. We can get into vesting and reverse vesting on this call and why it's so important. For example, with understanding the idea behind vesting and reverse vesting, when you start a company with all your friends, you guys are all excited to do it or your colleagues, you have all the spark of idea. We're like, let's do this. Let's all get in here and let's run off and, and go raise money. And then companies are hard. Life happens. And sometimes people just walk away or they decide they don't want to be a part of it anymore. But you have to reconcile with the fact, okay, you cut the company up into four pieces and what's going to happen if someone wants to leave two weeks after they realize this isn't for me, but now they, they formally own that piece of the company. So for the other founders who want to stay around, you have to build in the appropriate mechanisms to make sure, okay, if one of us doesn't want to do this anymore and we want to leave after six months and the rest of us are committed, what are we going to do about that ownership stake? How is it going to get cut up? Is something going to get returned to the company? What's going to happen? And it's a little hard to have those conversations sometimes with your friends or with your future aspiring co-founders. Because it's almost like you're getting a prenup before you get married. I thought you loved me. Why, what are we doing here? Why are you making me sign this? But it's for the good of everyone getting into this relationship. Because like you go through really hard times as a founder, as any founder will, will tell you. And you have to make sure you have the mechanisms in place when you're still level-headed and there's not as much emotion involved yeah. to set up those boundaries and to set up those mechanisms. Especially like you said, when it's the optimistic starting of a business where everything seems like it's just going to be this law land and you've come up with this beautiful idea and you're ready to go and that... Most of us have experienced that's not exactly how it goes. And I think one part that I really enjoyed, maybe a bit, I probably enjoyed it a little too much, but you have a, sort of these sections called like blown raises, which are, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, basically you educate through your like something like vesting or don't take too high of a salary. And then you share a story at the end of that sort of segment on a blown raise. And through that story mechanism, I think the lesson that you taught is uh, even more hard hitting as formalizes why that information is important through an example. So I think that was a really a valuable part that you did. And then also as someone who's been an entrepreneur, I think you just, you recognize yourselves in those stories, which, yeah. So yeah. thank you. And, uh, you know, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. To provide some more context for people listening. When we, I, I saw a lot of entrepreneurs, like I said, who had great ideas who, who blew up for making a fatal mistake and, and, one thing I never wanted to happen again was to see someone with a great idea lose the opportunity to have an enormous amount of success in life simply because they made these preventable mistakes. And the first story in the book is in our intellectual property chapter four. And that was my experience from my very first month in venture capital. When the story was about 
these two sisters who developed this fantastic device. I don't want to get too much into it to, to give away who they might have been, but they developed this fantastic device and they were so excited to, to build it. And what they did is they put all of the design schematics, all of the hardware details, everything about the device on a crowdfunding platform to try and get some money to build a uh, prototype. And they ended up getting about thirty dollars to $40,000 from the crowdfunding platform. They built the prototype and they went around to all these venture funds to try and raise money now to build on the idea. And they came to my, our fund and then... My first fund that I was at, the uh, general partner of the fund, had an enormous depth of knowledge in intellectual property law. And they listened to their story and they said, oh, yeah, we, we had this crowdfunding platform. And the first question he had was, oh, well, when was this campaign? When did you raise? And they said, oh, it was 13 months ago. And he said, okay, what kind of detail did you put on there? And they said, we put everything on there and put everything, all the design, all the details, everything about the device. And he just said, okay. When he was very polite and finished the meeting and he pulled me aside and he said, give me a teachable moment. He said, so why do you think that we're not going to even look at this for another minute? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, they can't protect anything. He's you have limits on how you can protect your intellectual property. And they didn't file any kind of provisional patents. They didn't file any kind of protections. They didn't uh, talk to an intellectual property professional before they put the designs on to limit what they had to show the public. And as a result of just a very poor intellectual property disclosure, their device was not able to be protected. And the follow-on to that story I heard was that they went up and down the valley to a number of different venture funds and found the exact same thing hitting them in the face, which was you had poor intellectual property disclosures, which is not going to let you protect this, which means that a lot of your boat is no longer going to be defensible. And it was a tragedy in my mind. And then they were really the inspiration for this book was this first incident was seeing people who like could have built something huge and it's just a, a very small mistake. But the reverberation of that one mistake just took them out of the business. So if they listen to you just share that, would they know that you're talking about them? Do you think they would? I, uh... hope. <laughs> I, 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 I actually made a point. We wrote this book. We changed the, the change the genders. We changed the industries. Mm, we changed some of the devices and we changed a few ways the stories ended to mask the identity of the people involved. Got it. it could have been two sisters. It also could have been two brothers. No one will know. Yeah, no one uh, or it could have been a brother-sister combo. But it's the idea is the lesson of the nugget was that intellectual property disclosures are a big way that entrepreneurs make mistakes because you're so excited to show the world what you're doing and show everyone how it works. And uh, you can show the world, but you have to talk to someone first about how much can you show and what level of disclosure can I provide and how deep inside the box can I show people uh, what I'm building. So it's always something when you're building something, especially a new kind of technology, it's always worth engaging with an intellectual property lawyer, or patent agent, and talk to them about what your disclosure practices should look like. And that just doesn't carry over to your public facing materials, but also what, what you put inside your data room, for example, when you want to have an investor go through a due diligence process, what are you actually going to put in there? What level of disclosure are you going to have in there? So intellectual property is one of the big uh, pillars we talked about. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. I think you're guiding entrepreneurs through this sort of things to think about because a lot of us, not all of us, there's a lot of people who are strategic and they start business with everything planned and mapped out. But a lot of us are just passionate about the problem. Or sometimes we're not even passionate about the problem. We're just passionate about a solution that we've built. 
And so oh, you, yeah. get, you get clouded by that. And all you want to focus is on that. I'm that way too. I'm an oversharer. I'm like, I, I probably just described just some deep sort of intelligence that our team has through working through this problem, just because I'm interested in the problem, probably didn't need to share that, but you're just so fired up about the, the problem, the solution, the space that you're working in that you can't help yourself. Even you just sharing that reminds me, Tyler, shut up sometimes. <laughs> you wrote this book, you said the, the writing took place and then the editing took place. The editing took even longer. So that's interesting there, but I'm also interested in the, I guess a couple things, the shift that you've seen since you've started writing this book, obviously we're in a little bit of a different environment and I'm guessing this environment is going to last beyond the day that we're recording this. And then you've also now put this book into the world and you've shared a little bit, Hey, you're starting to finally put this out, talk about it a bit. So you're getting some feedback or some reception. So has anything shifted or transformed throughout writing the book and in the environment that we're in, or even the feedback that we're got, or has this just cemented the things that you've wrote it in the book even further? Yeah, so the biggest shift has been the general appetite for risk capital for investors. If you're in a rising interest rate environment, all of a sudden people's perceptions change. And then in a world where you can get 6% on a GIC, the appetite for participating in venture opportunities is very different. I know a number of family offices and angel investors who were routinely writing checks into early stage venture opportunities in 2018, 19, 20, 21, 22. And all of a sudden they're saying, look, I can get this kind of return on like a US 20 year treasury, or I can get this kind of return. And their appetite has pulled back. And compounding the issue is that a lot of people who were writing checks in 20, in 21, in 22 have not seen, they're effectively stockholders in these companies. And a lot of these companies no longer have the same ramp or pathway to a liquidity event that they would have had before. And so not only are you having people saying, look, I've got other products that I can invest in, which will satisfy what I want to do, but you also have the problem where they've got potentially millions stuck in companies that they can't then recycle that cash into a new opportunity. They're just stuck there. So it's compounding the problem. But the what we talk about this book, the focus is on being as prepared as you can possibly be to meet with venture investors or angel investors looking at early stage opportunities. And the idea here is that if you're going to meet with them and the risk profile has changed and they're more discerning, you have an obligation to be more prepared than ever when you actually meet with them. I can't tell you how many stories there were of people in 21, 22, the investor would send like a due diligence list and then the uh, company would be like, okay, I'm not responding to these. Are you in or you're out? And, and you had that much power because there was so much FOMO around some of these deals and getting in them or not. But it's a very different environment now, and people are much more uh, concerned that you have everything buttoned up. So that's the reason that when you actually go out to meet with these investors, if you take the lessons out of this book, you can make sure that you have all of those things prepared. A very um, simple example I think that would resonate is just having a data room prepared when you actually meet with an investor. And, and for people who are listening who might not know what a data room is, a data room is effectively just effectively a folder, an online folder where you store all of the key documents where that an investor would need to see to verify that the claims that you're making are true. Obviously, if I listen to your pitch, I'm going to take a uh, trust but verify approach. I'm going to assume that your sales are what you say they are. And I'm going to assume that these people work for you and you have an employment agreement and that all of these things are true, but I have to go verify them. So making sure that you actually have all of that information assembled from your articles of incorporation to your employment agreements, to intellectual property assignment agreements, to like your basic business plan to all the things that lawyers would need to see as well to verify that you're real. And I know there's cases where investors uh, have thrown money at companies when they haven't gone into the data room. 
But the reality is if someone asks you to go into your data room and you're not prepared or you say, hey, can you wait three weeks while I assemble documents, you're not going to be in a good place. One of the worst things you can do if you talk someone into investing into a high-risk opportunity and make them think it's a good idea is say, hey, can you cool your heels for four weeks while I assemble all this stuff because I don't have it ready? It's just bad because then they might find the next shiny new toy. And it's not even something where... Like there's a funny anecdote from a friend of mine whose company got this guy who's worth uh, nine figures. I think he was like 500 million. He was the CEO of a big U.S. company, a public U.S. company. And my, it was a former partner of mine. And he talked to the guy from investing about 2 million bucks. He's I'm going to send you this money. I love this company. It's great. It's great. And the guy's lawyers told him, you can't send this money. We're not going to let you. Like these wealth managers were telling us, we haven't verified if this yeah, company's yeah. real. We haven't seen the articles. We haven't seen the shareholder register. We have no idea what kind of, no, we're not going to. So <laughs> even this guy who is extraordinarily wealthy found that his own network was holding him back, telling him, look, like you can't write this check to this guy because we haven't seen all these documents. So it's not something where you might find someone who, who's got wealth managers or advisors who are willing to let them fire off a million bucks or something without verification. But for the most part, you're going to need to be able to produce these documents. So I, that's, I like that. That's assembled. a nice safety mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> if we end up, if any of us end up in that situation, I hope that there's people who are not just yes people around me making me do a little validation because yeah, that's super, super interesting. And you elaborate on this a little bit more in the book. You use the example, whether it's Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, but you see all this optimism on the show and it's a little bit theater and performance, but most of those right. deals probably don't, I don't know, you don't probably know the exact percentage, but a lot of those deals don't go through because once you get into the documentation or like you said, oh, the, the television producers are not doing any kind of real due diligence on the companies in terms of they're not going to read audited financial statements or go over your intellectual property assignments. It's the producers are there to get something exciting on the show. And for a lot of the companies, they're there to promote. I know people who've gone on Dragon's Den who have had no intention of actually getting money from the dragons. They're just like, no, I get a free commercial on primetime, you know? But the reality is you're right, is like people can go on Dragon's Den and say, look, I'm, I'm doing this thing. These are my activities. This is what our company's about. These are our sales. And I know the dragon under the shark says, okay, I'll do the deal, but you never know what's under the hood. You don't know if there's like an onerous, angry ex-founder in the background who's got a huge stake of the company who has to approve the transaction or... You don't know if what kind of litigation the company's involved with. You don't know if someone's been violating their non-competes or has run off with something stolen. You don't know until you actually get under the hood. I don't know the exact number, but I think it's about 50% of those deals don't come through, even though they shake hands on the show. Oh, and it's fascinating too, like how much uh, a number, it, not even that it's necessarily misrepresented, but when you take a more, like a more deep look at it, what you can unveil, maybe you've got some sort of top line uh, revenue uh, number and whether it's AR, whatever it is. And then, but then for example, people, then the next question that comes is what, per, out, how much is the average per customer? Or is there, a, is there a one customer who's 85% of this? Cause what happens if you lose oh, this yeah, customer? Like, customer? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Customer concentration risk, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. And, and, those, and you uh, think it sounds so great and then you get dug into it and then you realize how, how easily something can be built on a little bit of a house of cards and look shiny from the outside and one until you, you oh, know, yeah, get yeah. to the house. Well, I mean, <laughs> You don't know if it's a related party transaction. You don't know if it's like the oh, CEO's cousin's company that put the lead order in or something. I do see a lot of founders try to finesse the definition of revenue when they pitch investors. And I, I so strongly discourage it because I understand that like what your motivation is. You're like, I just need them to think that I've got this thing coming or I've got a huge book in the pipe. But revenue, depending if you're using whatever accounting standard you're using, if it's IFRS or US GAAP, there's a pretty strict definition of revenue. 
And when you ask people and they'll tell you like, oh, I have a million bucks in revenue. And then you look and you're like, no, you have a hundred thousand and you might have another 900,000 if these people keep renewing or something. But I've seen so many people try to play games with investors in these decks and manipulating kind of the financials. And it's, you, you can do that. And it's, I hope that's great if you can get the process going, but then if you get caught, the consequences can be extraordinary if you're wasting their time or, or what exactly the extent of the lie that you're telling people. We, we have a whole chapter in the book about do not lie. Yes. And <laughs> it was one of those things where you think it would be obvious, but no, it's a lot of entrepreneurs who get frustrated on can often feel like if I just say this little thing, or if I just exclude mentioning this, or if I omit this detail, it'll get me to the next stage and I'll be okay. But depending on how far along that process you go with an investor, the consequences can be absolutely extra extraordinary if you lie. Although the low, the lowest risk of lying at the outset is that the guy just tells you to buzz off. Yes, exactly. You know, he's, okay, well, you're clearly full of it. But then the bigger consequence is they say, oh, you just lied to me in this most bald-faced way. I'm going to warn the other investors in my network about what you're up to and then say, Hey, there's a guy on the street. There's this person looking to raise money. And then they're lying about all these details. You'll stay away. And we do mention this in the book. The big consequence is that oftentimes when you go to raise money from people, it's people who have expertise in your field. Mm. So if you're raising money from an expert in your field, and then you lie to them and grossly deceive them, and then they tell everyone else who's an expert in investing in your field, you might've just poisoned a very large well of people. So it's something where I understand where the motivation comes from, but you should never walk down that road around like lying or like making up new financial definitions for revenue that you think are going to help you a little bit more. And you talk a little bit about, and I've had this, a similar experience when I'm talking to an investor, like they'll try to put a little pressure on you up front. And part of it is like a stress test to see, do you know your numbers? Do you know what some of these definitions, what even some of the metrics or definitions are? And you can get put into a spot where you don't know the answer. And you're also, you don't want to show that you don't know the answer. So you, and it's a dangerous situation. Like you said, like you don't even, you're not even necessarily sure it's a lie, but you're trying to save face and that can put you in a very dangerous situation as well too. So even not even lies, but just uncertainty and even a soft commitment of something could be a bad start. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean any, any investor who demands that you as an engineer of developing a new tech solution, quote back US gap, ASC 606 revenue standards to them. Like that's, what are we doing here? But it is your responsibility, though, as anyone going to raise money, you have to have a cold understanding of your metrics and your numbers. You have to. And then not just your financial metrics. You know, we talk about this in the book about depending what kind of company you're building, you're going to have different KPIs that are relevant to your kind of industry and you need to be able to communicate them. If you're trying to raise money for some kind of social media company and you don't know the basics of what a monthly active user or a daily active user and how that's defined or how some of the other big companies define that term, you're not going to put yourself in a good place because there's going to be questions around, okay, how big do you have to get this platform to get X level of return for someone to actually want to participate in this? Knowing your numbers is so critical to, to even before you knock on a door of an investor. And I know the numbers move. That's always hard when it's an emerging opportunity. Your numbers can move and they can move fast, but you, you have an obligation to know them and you have an obligation to keep updating your materials so they don't go stale. Yeah. Um, pitching with stale materials is like something that always gets people tripped up. And I know that the fundraising process can be long, but at the end of the day, every single time you go to raise money, there's fundraising documents, your data room. It's a living, breathing thing that you have an obligation to tend to and care to the lawn. You just have to keep refreshing for it and caring for it and then updating things accordingly because it's a process. And it's it, interesting too, there's these mental, I'm not sure you've seen these too, but there's these sort of mental 
numbers that seem to be like big milestones within a business. One of them say millionaire. And so a company will start and they'll hack themselves, hack their way to that mark because it's a nice mental milestone for them that then they go and raise more money. And we've seen like, for example, I don't know the exact details of this, but Y Combinator has this great alumni network. So when they bring a, when they bring a new company in, that company accesses that network. There's a little bit of love going through that network. And then very quickly you can stack some revenue and then go out to the market with those. But then you realize there's such a more sophistication in investing now where revenue is not enough. It's about the efficiency or the uh, net expansion of customers within your business or churn rate, or I know Craft Ventures, David Sachs thing, they've got a whole system that plugs in and is measuring every metric of your software because revenue is not just enough. And then now we're entering this environment Uh, where this is even more important, right? Uh, So I just think it's such a fascinating, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but something I'm seeing is you cannot just be sufficient in revenue anymore. And in the, in some cases, people are hacking that together. And once they get to that mark, like I've seen an example of this, where they literally had to fire a bunch of their customers because they were not a good fit for the business. They were not yeah. ideal customer revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're an emerging opportunity, you can't always point to an attractive financial metric because you might not have one. Yeah. People ask you about your EBITDA, your profitability, and you're like, what profit? And then especially when you're in certain industries where you're doing more of a land grab and you're trying to just grab as many users as possible, and then you want to try and upsell them down the road, maybe you're right. Revenue isn't necessarily the most applicable, but to the extent that, you know, like subscription services, for example, your churn rate is incredibly important, right? Just because understanding the stickiness of your customers and who's actually uh, hanging around. And and I've, I've worked for businesses where we had subscription uh, video services, for example, and like the churn rate is something that you, the executives are looking at every single week. It's something that you have an obligation to be on top of to understand why someone comes to you, like discovers who you are, subscribes, engages with you, and then says, forget it. Like you you owe yourself an obligation to say, why are these people saying forget it? So it's something where you should elicit questions. And I'm not saying that means you have to tinker endlessly, but you should yeah. be asking yourself questions routinely. And, you know, just a, another interest. So the, the title of the book literally is the, is the Big Race. And we've seen... I guess has your even so the title obviously uh, everyone has these dreams especially I think starting you have this big fundraising round and you get to go on whatever tech venture venture news or whatever you want and say hey we just raised 10 million seed or series A or whatever yeah. and then we've now I think a little through the journey I've had I've been lucky enough to see a couple of companies play out both the positive side and the negative side, but then also in the environment, we've, or I guess depending on how you're looking at a business, this idea of is the big raise even the right thing for me versus going more, uh, a little bit more of a bootstrapping method or a yeah. little bit more, or you talk about it in the book too, non-dilutive capital. Can you find, if you're lucky enough to be in a country where like in Canada, we've got IRAP and Shred and all these yeah, things. Yeah, we, we can get that for sure. My co-author put this line in the book. I got to give him credit for it, but he said dilution is the price of growth. It's a matter of if you want to go out there and go as fast as you can, you have to accept the fact that you will be diluted. But if you want to try and go it alone and build it alone, you can have every right to do that. But you might have to accept the fact that the price of that is that you're not going to grow as quickly from internal profits. And there's lots of guys who did not go out there and actually got diluted capital. And there's a few unicorn stories like MailChimp is always that story yeah. everyone brings about saying, look, these guys got billions of dollars and didn't necessarily have to dilute themselves. But the reality is for most of us is that we're not, wealthy enough to see these things grow to the size that we want to see them go at. And so you have to accept that. But that being said, early stage capital is very expensive in the form of dilution, because if you're lending money to a big sophisticated business like Google or something with very well-known economics, 
it's, it's very straightforward. But if you're investing in something where the product doesn't exist yet, the regulatory environment is changing every single quarter, politicians don't understand it, so they pass their own rules about how they think your product should be regulated. All of a sudden, the economics become very tricky. But as an entrepreneur, you have access to other sources of capital, which might be less expensive or entirely non-dilutive, at least in the form of equity, not your time. And we talk about this in the book about the importance of going out there and landscaping. And we talk about grant landscaping and competition landscaping. And grant landscaping is looking at all those kind of government programs or even just non-government programs that some consultancies, some banks, some accelerators offer where you can potentially get uh, money that comes in and it might just come in as a straight grant. And depending on what kind of activity you're doing, depending on the kind of people you hire, depending on the kind of industry you're operating in, if you're developing some kind of green tech or clean tech solution, you might find there's lots of grants available to you. Uh, Canada in particular has lots of these kinds of programs. The Shred program, for example, if you're developing novel intellectual property, you can apply for rebates against the payroll and that spend on those activities, which can actually, it's, and they're extraordinarily beneficial because once you start getting these kind of rebates back from the government, that shred cash, you can actually borrow against future shred cash. There's lenders who will do it. So it provides some flexibility as well. And so there's a really broad array of these programs. And what's frustrating is that I don't know of anyone who's really collated all of them into a single place because even these programs, sometimes they change their name all the time. There was a program I know that the federal government does that I heard about where Essentially, they'll be like your first customer and they'll start buying from you and then they'll try and help. They'll try and find other federal departments to help you. And it they, it's changed its name at least twice in the last uh, decade or so. I think it was called Made in Canada or something mm. or bought in Canada. But the idea is you if you do this landscaping activity, you might be pleasantly surprised to see how much cash you can qualify for. And the other side of the competition landscaping we talked about was uh, actual pitch competitions. There are so many pitch competitions where there's actually a pretty considerable cash prize. I was at an event several weeks ago at an accelerator and then the top prize was 15,000 bucks. And it's not a lot of money, but if you're an early stage company scrapping take cash, it, you know, exactly. if, if all you have to do is present for an hour to a group and work on a presentation, that's not a bad use of your time. And what's nice about these pitch competitions as well is it's going to force you to, you know, firm up your actual pitch, crystallize your thinking, think about what resonates, what doesn't. It gets you in front of people. It helps you tell your story. It puts you in rooms with people who have access to capital and friends with access to capital. And we do mention a brief story in the book about this one founder I knew in New York who she got, I think it was, yeah, she got a quarter million bucks for her business purely from pitch competitions. Mm-hmm. And it was all non-diluted pitch competition yeah, yeah. cash. There's lots of opportunities out there. And you talk about the flip side of it sometimes too, even non-dilutive capital, or those can be pretty unruly, maybe the amount of documentation or work. Yeah, that yeah, do. Yeah. I particularly have one, I'm not going to name the program, but one grant that was a non-dilutive capital. But by the time I was done that program, I'm like, we should have never done this. The yeah. reporting requirements <laughs> as part of it were not worth yeah. the effort. <laughs> I should have just kept going. The yeah. grant writing process can be extensive. Yeah. So it's people, like, I think we make the joke in the book, that it can feel non-dilutive, but after you've spent as much yeah. time as you have writing and writing and get submitting like five-year business plans and all these trailing financials and all this and what you're going to do and how you're going to help this little town, how this, and you're sitting there at the end of it. You're like, why did we do this? (laughs) I guess a question, two, two part question for you. First, how as an investor do people look at companies who have been a little scrappy with non-dilutive capital? And then the other part that you talk about in this book and it's sort of widely, given advice around fundraising is a sort of the sense of creating FOMO and playing investors off each other. And again, I think 
that environment has changed and you talk about many reasons why that environment has changed a little bit. So when you look at deals that are actually going through, um, do you have any assessment or any understanding of has that, not that has it changed, but the, the distinction, like who are these companies who are successfully raising now? And are they still playing those same dynamics? Is there something different that you're seeing in a company that's going through successfully versus unsuccessfully? Whereas I personally never experienced this myself, but in 2020, 2021, the, the word on the street was, oh, you can walk into any office in, in San Francisco and walk away with a million dollars, which is obviously not the state that we're in now. I personally never felt that state, but yeah, just any change in uh, assessment or understanding of successful companies raising right now. Uh, going back to the FOMO, a lot of the boils down to, sorry, your earlier, your first question was about investors' perceptions of the non-dilutive capital. Investor perception is always positive to non-dilutive capital because essentially what you're getting is you guys are moving further along, you're de-risking the opportunity mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, with this cash in the door, which has hopefully allowed you to progress and, and hire people or build things or actually move things along. But also it gives you a sense of validation. So if I'm an investor and I'm like, oh, you won this prize from this consultancy and you went to this big four firm and you won that, it's like, okay, oh, this is getting a lot of validation here. So there can be like an inadvertent kind of third-party validation effect from seeing someone win a lot of awards and then actually get cash in the door in response to it. As far as uh, the FOMO goes, I mean, uh, my old general partner used to say where I first worked is he said a lot about raising money is about momentum. And if you don't have momentum, at least the perception of momentum, <laughs> there is like a bit of a logic where you, know, you want to create that excitement that we're doing the next big thing and pull people in. I always get frustrated when uh, I see kind of founders who go out there and then they get some friends, we're kind of soft circling and this investor soft circling and I'm looking for a lead and all that. And then you, you feel like you have momentum and then there's no lead that materializes and the momentum sputters out and all of a sudden you can't see it through at the end. I hope some companies talk about this and you can say when you're raising a lot of smaller checks, you might have to realize that there isn't a lead coming in, but there's a lot of money that needs to come in. It might be something where the company then just says, okay, we're setting the term sheet. We're going to set this, you're in or you're out. I'm not doing this six months looking for a lead business. Yeah, But I understand the, why some people push for that, but then you have to respond at the same time and say, look, it's great that like you want to have a lead to help set this, but maybe we're going to set it and you're going to come in and you're not going to come in. So I don't know if I would say that you're creating a FOMO in the worst way, but you are telling people you can't be a fence sitter if you want to be in this opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And you are like, you've written this book. I, we haven't reconnected for a little bit. So your current status. What are you doing right now? Besides obviously writing and promoting this book, are you still help? You're helping companies through this process. What's the current role? And then does the, I guess the release of this book and the work, does it, I'm guessing it aligns in some way with it, but what was the, what was the ideal outcome or what you were trying to achieve with actually the writing besides sharing knowledge? You'd be interested to hear your thought process around this and everything you're doing in life. Yeah, no, when I was writing this book, it was over three years. I had my own business where I was helping companies raise money and building financial models. And eventually what happened is my largest client, I kept building models for acquisition deals they were doing over the years. And then about a year and a half ago, they just said, look, can you just come in-house full-time? Because <laughs> we'd rather you just, like, we're doing so many deals and so many transactions that we'd rather you just come in-house full-time. So I finished the editing of this book while I was at that firm, where I still am now. And now, more or less, my full-time job is marketing this book on top of my other full-time job. So <laughs> God. it's book, book marketing is it's a bit of a slog, but it's, I'm really glad to be doing it because like I said, when I got started, the objective was to share the message of this book with as many people as possible mm. and to keep people from making those kinds of mistakes that I saw earlier in my career that frustrated me so much. 
My co-author actually is a practicing attorney in, in Dallas, and they have a corporate venture capital practice and a private equity practice. Mm. So his motivation was more like, look, I can use this as a tool to help attract clients into Got my it. business yeah, yeah. and use it as a biographical, uh, semi-biographical uh, piece of knowledge that they can throw around there. But for myself, at the time I started writing it, I was probably thinking to myself, no, oh, this is a great way to help my own kind of venture activities. But now I find with where I'm working now, I don't know what the future holds, but it might be something where I go back into it and, and work more on the venture side. And then you've got, so the, the book is live. Literally, I have a, an actual hard copy here. I guess hard, soft copy, but it's real. It's not just a digital yep. book, which is great. <laughs> it feels nice. It looks good. I got it off Amazon. Is there any, if someone's actually interested in checking this out, is there, is Amazon the right place? Is there a better place to buy uh, this book from? For my own purposes, I don't get better economics if it's sold on Amazon or if it's sold on Indigo. So I, I don't actually have any bias to where I direct yeah. people. I tend to direct people to Amazon to buy it just because I think it's 85 to 90% or something of all books sold or sold through Amazon. And there's just a concentration benefit of having people comment on the book and buy it from a single yeah. source that helps a little bit. The book's also available. The Kindle edition went live about a week ago. Mm. And the soft copy has been live for a couple of weeks now and is now shipping out from everywhere. And it's been great because people are actually getting the physical copies of the book. They're getting them on hand. And it really is special when you spend years and years on an intangible word file. And then you actually get to see it translated yeah. into an actual physical feeling. So it's I have no preference for retailer. But if you want to buy it from Amazon, that's, that's great. And any plans, any plans for audiobook? Are we going to be able to listen to your voice? Oh, yeah. My, my co-author really wanted us to do an audiobook. And then we thought no one wants to listen to us. No one wants to listen to us describe how safe notes convert under a... You want to hear some dry mathematics on it? Yeah, I'm still breaking apart a couple charts in this book here right now. And even there's some concepts that seem probably so familiar to you and comprehensible. And then I'm looking at this table and I'm doing math and it's about preferred <laughs> shares and common shares. And God damn it. And I wish it just looked like made sense to me, but still these things. And, and again, it's building some of the technology and building a business is complex enough. And then you get into all this and you just add... 10 times more layers yeah, of complexity we, into building a company. When we wrote the book, the objective uh, at the start was we wanted to write a text where nobody would have to put the book down, go to Investopedia, and then look up a word to figure out mm. what we were talking about. So I remember when we were writing this book, we got two thirds of the way through. And then I said to my co-author, I'm like, oh, we never actually explain what equity or debt is or the difference between them, or why you can and can't get them at certain stages. And so we shoehorned in chapter three. We wrote chapter three. It's probably one of the last chapters that was written, primarily because we said, okay, we have to go back to basics here. I, my objective was like a 20-year-old engineer who's never taken a finance class in their life should be able to read this cover to cover, understand the terms, have them explained to them in plain language, which does not require them to run off and go somewhere else. There are some concepts, obviously, which are extremely complex especially when you get into kind of nuances of like share control and transfer and the legal stuff around there. Uh, that's one of the final chapters we get into um, at the end of the book. And I feel like people are probably gonna have to read that at least twice uh, if they wanna, they wanna take it away. But for the most part, I think we nailed it in terms of the level of graspable complexity for the average person who might wanna consider starting a business and, and raising third-party capital. So I, I, and that was part of the um, stress of the editing process was, we wrote it in a way that was very, like we thought we had it at the level it needed to be at. And then through our editors who we worked with for months, 
they told us like, no, nope, you gotta enough, drop yeah. it down a bit, drop it down a bit, drop it down a bit. And my colleague who's a corporate attorney was getting so frustrated because he said, we need a certain level of complexity on the law side when explaining something or we're going to get ourselves in trouble. So it was a very long process to work with him to satisfy the level of detail that he would need to provide and be able to make it accessible to readers. Anyone reading this book will probably notice that we use the phrases actually, typically, generally, almost to an obnoxious degree in, in some chapters, because we're, we're trying to caveat that, look, this is how it usually works. But like in accounting and finance and law, there's always this exception that you want to make sure you don't result in people neglecting because you qualified something of an absolute. So and when you, and just maybe a couple of final thoughts, I'm interested to know, like you're to me, you're always super passionate. You're working in at this firm here now, and then you've written, written this book. And so you're not, I wouldn't say thrust into the spotlight, but you're put into a position where people are say, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about in a lot of this stuff. So I'd just be interested to know like what, what's when you look at the market now or what's going on in the world, is, is there anything that's exciting you right now? What is there specific spaces or industries or anything that you think is that's really ca- captured your attention uh, at the moment? I, I can tell you what I'm excited about, but I, I think it's, people might not be happy about it. But at the end of the day, there was a lot of uh, misallocation of capital that happened in 2020, 21, and 22. And there's effectively going to be bargain basement opportunities to buy Got companies yeah, which yeah. <laughs> misallocated capital. That's not a polite thing to say, but the reality is there were businesses that did, like, in that zero interest rate environment, just allocated to things that didn't make sense, overextended themselves, and now they're in full retreat. And so you're seeing a lot of companies sell off assets right now, which are actually pretty attractive. Mm. Like once you actually have a proper uh, capital structure attached to it. As far as the venture markets go, though, I actually find it really exciting. I still have a lot of friends who are starting companies, despite Mm. what the current environment looks like. It's almost better if you're starting now because you're in the new normal and like you haven't attached yourself to a historic valuation, which you might like, you cannot stomach coming down. I know people who raised in 21 and 22, early 22, who cannot divorce themselves from those valuations. And the big problem especially is that they might have accepted terms from investors which have very nasty anti-dilution provisions, which means that if they do have to have a down round, it's going to be extremely consequential to the founder's equity. Mm. So it's a big problem that a lot of people just can't acknowledge. And unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot of entrepreneurs and founders today blow themselves up because for regrettably an avoidable reason yeah. where the avoidable reason is you wake up and smell the coffee and say, okay, this is the new risk environment. This is the price of capital. I know I was raising this before, but you know, pitch book in 2022 is not going to be the one writing the check with mm. the investor today. So it, the opportunity though, I find is that there's still lots of great venture companies that are coming. There's lots of new technology that's coming up. I've got a really good friend of mine out of invest Ottawa who started up a new med tech company and he's like humming along and raising money and bringing in founders and getting a really positive response from the market already. So I'm not worried about new, uh, new ideas, not being able to come to market, yeah. but I think you, people have to assess the new reality. And just to follow up on that, there's an interesting tracking that's happening right now. And maybe you can tie these two things together, which is for example, people who are more on the personal side with mortgages, it's like Canada, people who are going yeah. through the renewal cycle. So they're about to hit a new mortgage rate that is cost prohibitive based on what they were currently doing. And I'm wondering if you have any feeling on 
that cycle for companies who have raised funds? Because it seemed like there was a lot of fundraising, obviously, in 2020, 2021. And I'm trying to figure out, I don't know where we are on this path of, there's a lot of companies probably running out of money right now or coming into a time where they're going to have to go back to market and raise that money. So obviously there's furious cutting that's happening. There's mergers and acquisitions, but I'm just wondering, I don't know if you can pan it or where we are, like, where are we on the cycle of that? And I know you can't control the interest rates and rise. What I'm trying to figure out is how many companies are we going to see explode over the next nine to 12 months because they're going to go back to market? Uh, I don't know. I'm just curious. No, you're not, you're not, you're not wrong. The reality is that this is, I guess, conventional, right? Or, no, that's not it. But, but essentially, interest rates take a while to work their way through the system. Some people talk about it takes 12 to 18 months for an actual rate to be fully felt by the market. And the reality is that, and this is particularly true in Canada, Canadians put all their eggs in the housing basket, more or less, as a country. And unfortunately, you're going to see a very ugly reverse wealth effect from people thinking their houses are dropping and dropping every single month. And you're going to get pinched. And that's going to affect, by the way, the kind of angel activities you're seeing. Because a lot of angels, um, quite frankly, were, were recognizing these extraordinary paper gains on their home. And they felt much more free about allocating capital around the market. But no, the reality is, is that the higher cost of capital is going to bring increase the cost of the higher risk capital. It's going to reduce the appetite for that higher risk capital. You're going to have reverse wealth and housing. And you are going to see, unfortunately, there are going to be a number of, a lot more companies blowing up. Uh, and, I, and I don't say that in like a, you know, a fun way, positive yeah. way. It's really <laughs> regrettable. Just, a lot of people extrapolate a trend forever yeah. into the future. We have that extrapolation bias. And then unfortunately, when you mm. do that with a floating leverage, the consequences can be extraordinary. So and you- it's... You touched on something else just is that you're going to the out to the world with this book right now and you're you've been met with some pessimism in this because of the current rate but you've always been a pretty optimistic um, guy so if, if you had uh, anything if you wanted to leave anyone who watched this with a, a positive note or maybe some uh, encouragement as they're going through this journey anything else you want to share and then I'll leave you also any other closing thoughts about the book or anything else uh, that you'd like to share for the audience here. Uh, At the end of the day, good ideas are still going to get them. That's the simple reality is that if you have a great idea and you present well to investors and you come off as a consummate professional with all of your information, you're organized, you have assembled a great team, you understand the risks, you understand where they're coming from with the terms they're demanding, you can still raise money. Like Even in the current environment, you can still get capital. And um, to be clear, there are lots of funds who raised money in 21 and 22, lots of venture funds who have to actually find those good opportunities in the next year or so to allocate to because they have to return the capital back to their own investors. And we talk about this in the book, the way most venture capital funds are structured, but they're on a clock. And when you're on a clock, you've got X amount of time to find good opportunities. And these venture funds, some of them are holding back cash to allocate to some of their other investments that are on fire. But there's also newer funds that are still looking for great companies to put money into that they can keep putting money into as the market eventually trough and improve. So it's something where like people shouldn't like despair and think, wow, the venture market is like it's absolutely sunk and I'm not going to get money and there's no point in going out there. It's you know, no, it's you can still go out there. If you have a great idea, you can still go out there and get money. You just have to accept the reality that the market is where it is now. And that you might just find that what you saw in 21 and 22 doesn't apply, but that doesn't mean you can't succeed. So I would never want to sell and tell anyone you're not going to, you have zero chance. Good ideas always have a chance. Mm. 
have so many things I'd like to say, but I think that's a great note to end it on here. We've got the book, The Big Raise. I'm gonna include the links in this video. And again, appreciate you making some time and sharing this. I'm excited to follow you on your sort of book launch and sharing journey. I think that's interesting undertaking. So I'd be excited to reconnect in the future here to hear how everything goes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, the, the response has been great. We were um, number one on raising capital and venture capital on Amazon Canada when we, we launched. And now we're going out everywhere and telling the story and talking to more outlets. And so it's exciting. So I'm really actually glad my first podcast appearance got to be with you on the hey, And we got to reconnect after all this time. So. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. And thank you to everyone who checked this out. Appreciate you as always. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye.